I think as sustainability professionals and researchers, we really cannot afford any longer to preach, reduce our emissions, but then engage in the single most carbon intensive activity, which is flying as of today. Advancing Sustainable Solutions, the IIIW podcast. We are the International Institute for Industrial and Environmental Economics at Lund University, and this episode will be hosted by Sophie Sandin and Stephen Curtis. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Stephen. Hey, and welcome back to you, our listeners, for a new semester of Advancing Sustainable Solutions. A new semester. The students have started here at our institute. Uh, the snow fell last night. That was a nice surprise. Yes, even here in the south of Sweden. Yeah. And I don't know. There's something in the air. It feels like uh, a new beginning. New year, new a, possibilities. Exactly. And and with a new year and a new beginning, uh, Sophie and I have spent some time discussing new episode ideas for the podcast, maybe some new formats, and new surprises to bring to you all in the new year. We also have made some changes to our websites, which you find at www.iiwe.lu.se/podcast. There, you can find more information about the podcast, about your host. That's us. That's us. And you can also find a transcript for all new episodes as of now, as well as links to references and resources that we use when we create these episodes. With the new year brings new ideas, new beginnings, and new resolutions that we're excited to share with you all. Yeah, and. That's actually the theme of this month's episode, New Year's resolutions. I don't know about you, maybe you've made New Year's resolutions yourself. I know that uh, you can't escape New Year's resolutions on social media. Wherever you look, people sharing New Year's resolutions, and I think that's great. Of course, New Year's resolutions are an opportunity to reflect on aspects of our lives that we may wish to improve. Maybe you've made a New Year's resolution. Uh, Sophie, I don't know, what about you? Have you made New Year's resolutions? I have stopped making New Year resolutions as such. But I usually think of January as a new beginning, like we said. What I do is that I usually make some kind of revision of the past year, thinking about what I am particularly happy with, what I would like to do better for the next year, and so on. And maybe then I make a resolution. In the past, these have been everything from, you know, stopping to drinking coffee, to a complete shop stop, anything that I thought that I should try to challenge myself in doing. But uh, January is also in this northern part of the world, a quite dark, cold and wet place. And therefore, this time of year, many people, myself included, also long for warmer latitudes. And it's also a time when people fly away to far away, nice, sunny places. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. And myself, when I moved to Sweden, this is something that I learned about, this notion of suncations. A vacation to somewhere sunny to replenish your vitamin D reserves and bask in the warm and bright sun. It sounds really nice. And uh, I certainly myself have... Uh, taken uh, one or two suncations since I've moved to Sweden. Stephen, I have some numbers for you. According to the Swedish Agency for Economic and Regional Growth and Statistics Sweden, Swedes traveled more than 23 million times for at least one day outside of Sweden in 2017. Now, if you consider the total population of Sweden, which is just over 10 million people, that is a lot of trips. And a large portion of those trips were made by flying. Yeah, okay. So that's really interesting to put it in a context for Sweden. And imagine that multiplied many times over across the globe. I saw a tweet this morning that uh, on average, there's 200,000 flights per day in the world. Wow. Yeah. And when one considers the urgent threat of climate change, 
Flying is one of those activities that we as an individual can seek to reduce. Consider this. Air travel accounts for roughly 5% of the man-made carbon emissions annually. This number is expected to continue to grow. By 2050, researchers expect aviation to account for about 15% of the global carbon dioxide emissions. And of course, this is because more people are flying more often. And while there have been advances in technology, which has led to more fuel-efficient planes, it is predicted that the world's fleet of planes is expected to double in number over the next 20 years. Yeah, it is troublesome to hear these numbers, especially knowing that we must dramatically reduce our carbon dioxide emissions over the next decade in order to prevent catastrophic impacts of climate change. However, recent data does not paint such a rosy picture. Consider the US. A recent report found that in 2018, carbon dioxide emissions in the US rose 3.4% from the prior year. While advancements have been made in energy efficiency and renewable energy products in the US, simply the rise is attributed to increased demand in flying, which has outpaced the gains made in reducing carbon emissions. It is this knowledge that has prompted the rise of an online movement. Personally, every time that I log on to Twitter, I see more and more people in my community vowing to fly less, many using the hashtag FlightFree2019 or hashtag FlyingLess. Uh, in Sweden, this has also been the case, with many making their New Year's resolutions to either reduce their flying or to not fly at all in 2019. Yeah, so there are movements and some great initiatives going on. So, in this coming episode, we will look into the ongoing research at our institute as regards flying and talk about how we, as parts of organizations, businesses and individuals, can tag along to this Flying Less initiative. One of the ongoing discussions at our institute and at Lund University is the adoption of a travel policy that encourages less flying. Now, we are encouraged by such discussions. Our sister department, the Lund University Center for Sustainability Studies, otherwise known as Luxus, announced in December that they have a new travel policy. Their new travel policy encourages staff to avoid traveling and to take ground transportation for trips less than 12 hours. And this is an important discussion to be having. The world's leading academic institutions are advocating for radical changes in policy and behavior. However, a 2016 study conducted in Sweden found that academics studying sustainability fly on average 72% more frequently just for work than the average Swede does in a total year. Now, this could be seen as an example of the value-action gap. Quite simply, this is the distance between one's stated values or attitudes and their actions. In researching for this episode, I also found another example to highlight the value-action gap. In Germany, those that vote for the Green Party are the most frequent flyers when compared to voters of other parties in Germany. While they likely possess the knowledge of and vote for a party that reflects a pro-environmental agenda, this does not translate into individual action. This may be because they tend to be among those with higher incomes. It is those in the highest income bracket in Germany that fly the most, on average 6.6 times per year, compared to those in the lowest income bracket, which fly less than one time per year. Of course, this is a complicated topic. Flying is a practice that is ingrained into your culture, even more so for those that have the financial means to do so. However, as an individual part of the global community, we must examine any and all opportunities to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Is individual action enough, though? Do we need policies to promote or support flying less? 
To help us understand more, we sat down with a PhD colleague, Jonas Sonnenschein, who's researching, among other things, flying from a behavioral economics perspective. Jonas is living in Slovenia, and is therefore almost 1,500 kilometers away from Lund. And in the spirit of this episode, we connected with him online to talk about his research and why he chose to cross Europe via train when he travels between Sweden and Slovenia. Hi, Jonas. Thanks for joining us from uh, Slovenia via video. So thus far in the podcast episode, we've talked about New Year's resolutions and in particular the context of flying. And of course, flying is a, a complicated topic, right? It's, it's something that's ingrained into our culture and it's something that we rely on and don't often think about the impact that flying has in uh, contributing to climate change and so on. Maybe you want to share a little bit about your personal beliefs or attitudes towards flying. Yes. And I think uh, I agree with you that flying is uh, one aspect of our, our lifestyle where people really have different opinions. I mean, just from my private experience, I try to avoid flying as much as possible because I think it has a huge climate impact. And as a climate researcher, I really cannot compromise that with my convictions. On the other hand, I have other environmentalist friends who really think that flying is okay because it is underregulated, right? They blame policymakers. And I can see a little bit of truth in that too. So I think it's a really polarized debate. And yeah, from my perspective, I think we need positive example, positive role models. So that's why I decided to minimize flying and actually didn't fly for the last two years to any work-related or private events. I like to train. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, I guess I'm glad that that's a perspective that our listeners will be able to hear. But I understand that you're actually working on this in the context of your research, a project called Behavioral Economics for Energy and Climate Change Policies. Maybe to start, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your project and what exactly is behavioral economics? Yes, I think it's good to start with behavioral economics. It's quite a hot topic at the moment and got two Nobel Prizes recently, Daniel Kahneman and, and Richard Taylor. Behavioral economics starts off from a criticism of the rational choice model that is the main decision-making process in conventional economics. Rational choice basically demands a lot from us as people. It claims that we make decisions such that we always try to fulfill our highest preference, that we have perfect information, that we can actually see or judge what are the impacts of our decisions. Behavioral economics, in contrast, they criticized this as too demanding and said, well, empirical ob observations show that we don't act like rational utility maximizers, but even in some cases systematically deviate from that decision-making idea. What does that mean? It means, for example, that we are averse to losses. We really try to avoid losses much more than striving for gains. Or that we, a simple example from now the energy context, that we stick to defaults. If our electricity provider decides, well, the default is that people get the electricity mix, so including coal, gas, renewables, then everybody, or not everybody, most people stick to the default. If we would change the default to, uh, say, a greener electricity mix or 100% renewables, then people still have the option to opt for another electricity tariff, but experience and experiments have shown that most people stick to the default. So these are examples where just a change in the choice architecture, that's what it's called, can have a large impact. In my research then, I, I try to apply some of the findings to the case of aviation and air travel. Yeah, exactly. So in your product, you, like you said, you have particularly been looking at flying. Why did you focus on this sector? Well, I think flying is one of the sectors 
that is, as I said before, underregulated. It has a huge climate impact, maybe from an economic or economy-wide perspective not, but for individuals it has, it has a big share of my footprint. And there's basically no policy. It's heavily subsidized. There's no VAT on, uh, so no value-added tax on uh, air tickets. There is no energy tax on kerosene. The building of airports is often subsidized with public money. So in a way, it is way too cheap to fly. People fly more and more. It's a huge climate issue. That's why I focus on this sector. All right. So please tell us a bit more about your research then. What did you find? What did you look at? So I wanted to look at how people accept or react to a climate surcharge on, on air tickets. So as one policy instrument and how they value their emission reductions through that specific policy instrument. So we did a big survey in Sweden and we asked people, first of all, whether they're in principle willing to pay such an air ticket surcharge. And we found that actually the vast majority is willing to pay such an air ticket tax. When you say air ticket tax, then you mean that the flyer is paying a little bit extra money for the ticket, right? Exactly. So typically these taxes, they exist already in in Germany, in the UK, in several countries, are distance-based. So for short distance flights, there's a certain tax. For medium distance flight, a certain tax. For long distance flights, a higher tax. And Sweden also plans to introduce such a tax. So that was also a little bit the background of our study to see what are the behavioral factors that influence people's uh, willingness to pay such a tax. So first of all, many people are willing to pay such a tax. Then we started varying the size of the tax, and we found that actually per ton of CO2, people are willing to pay quite substantial amounts. So on average, around 55 euros, which is still lower than the current Swedish CO2 tax, but much higher than any other carbon pricing schemes in the world right now. So there is a substantial willingness to pay such a tax. And we found also behavioral drivers behind this willingness to pay, because this might be interesting for policymakers. One finding was, for example, that higher incomes are willing to pay more. Another finding was that uh, also uh, women are much more willing in principle to pay such a tax than men. And I think this is a finding that was shown in previous studies that women tend to be a little bit more environmentally conscious. Then when it comes to more policy relevant drivers of willingness to pay, we found that the revenue use, so what revenues from taxation are used for, actually plays a major role. And people want consistency. They want to see that this is a tax for aviation where the revenues are also used for climate-related issues like improving the sustainability of the transport system or directly mitigating climate change. In contrast, there was way less preference for using revenues just for the general budget or even less preference for recycling the revenues from such a tax back to the people who pay it. So via income tax reductions or lump sum payments. So in essence, people are willing to pay if they know that the money will go towards decreasing the environmental impact that their actions have. Yes, I found this was one of the major drivers of willingness to pay, that a preference for this so-called earmarking, so using revenues for a certain purpose, this case climate change mitigation, this actually drove up willingness to pay, yes. I think what's interesting, Jonas, in thinking about your research is its application. I know at least one of the criticisms that I often read is that if one were to introduce a policy such as uh, an air ticket tax, 
in one country that that's a disadvantage to that country and their economy compared to other countries that don't regulate air travel in the same way. Maybe can you say a little bit about what the application of your research could be and and address this criticism of uh, inconsistent regulations or policies across the world? I, I think you're touching upon a great point here. And the same argument has been made in the discussion of the Swedish air ticket tax, which, by the way, was introduced in 2018. It was warned that it had such a big economic impact that uh, job loss would result from the tax and so on and so forth. Uh, I had a bit of a look into this study, which was published by an uh, industry association of the aviation sector, and it was a bit shaky. But I thought, great. I mean, if they're right, fantastic, because they thought that the demand for flying in response to this rather marginal tax would go, go down significantly. And, and I think from an environmental perspective, that would be great. But I think what my study shows is that people are, in fact, willing to pay much more than the planned tax level, especially for short distance flights. So flights within Sweden are just taxed with uh, around six euros per one way flight, while the willingness to pay was several times higher. So I think that this argument that the economy will suffer, competitiveness goes down, is a little bit of a uh, non-argument, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> and yeah, just some background on the Swedish air ticket tax that you've been mentioning now, Jonas. Like you said, it was introduced in April last year in 2018. And it has three levels. So uh, short distance flight, which is, is basically within the EU from Sweden, is six euros. And then we have the mid-range flights, which are taxed 25 euros. And then long distance flights, they're taxed 40 euros. Jonas, how do you think that these tax levels then compare to your results? You already mentioned something about the short distance flights, but what about the long distance flights? How's the tax there? Yes, thank you for asking that. I, that was one component of my study to compare the willingness to pay for short distance versus long distance flights because the hypothesis in the behavioral literature was that people are actually willing to pay more in a low cost context. So if I fly short distance, the absolute payment, because the emissions of short distance flights are not so high, the absolute payments are rather low. But if I transfer that into willingness to pay per ton of CO2, not for the, for the whole flight, but per ton of CO2, my hypothesis was that people are very willing to pay because the absolute payment is rather low still. While for long distance flights, you actually uh, have much higher emissions. So the absolute payment would be much higher. And that's also what I found. So per ton of CO2, the willingness to pay was significantly higher for the rather cheaper short distance flights and this is a bit in conflicting with the design of the tax because the design of the tax is in a way that for short distance flights the tax per ton of co2 is lower than for long distance flights while the willingness to pay is higher so if the policymakers would use this behavioral finding they could probably get more leverage from the tax so have a higher tax level for short distance flights than they actually implemented uh, one of the things that we've also talked about in this episode, Jonas, is about the value action gap. Is there any application or relevance in discussing the value action gap in relation to your research? Yes, I didn't research it explicitly, but we had an opinion poll in our survey uh, that gave some indications for a value action gap. So first of all, frequent flyers have a lower willingness to pay. So this indicates a little bit of free riding behavior, right? So I don't want to be punished because I have such a carbon intensive lifestyle. Moreover, 
people were willing to pay or at least expressed a willingness to pay. But when I asked them, who do you think is responsible for reducing emissions among five actors, including airlines, aircraft manufacturers, governments, international organizations, and individual travelers, they consistently ranked individual travelers lowest. So people don't feel responsible for reducing their emissions while they are willing to pay. So this can indicate, yes, we want to buy our way out of this because we, yes, we know about climate change and we know it's important to do something about it, but we don't really feel responsible for doing the work, the, the reduction of the emissions. So I think there is some indication for a value action gap in, in my data as well. I think that that's so interesting. I mean, People don't feel the responsibility to address the impact of their actions. And I wonder what can be done in order to encourage people to see the impact that they're having through flying, whether it's through policy or other means. What would be a takeaway from your research in this regard? I think to start with, a small climate tax or air ticket tax or whatever kind of tax will not do the job. There's even indications from behavioral economics literature that a small financial incentive might induce some sort of moral crowding out. People feel like they're doing something now because they're paying. So the intrinsic motivation to change their behavior goes down. So it might even backfire if the financial incentive is very small. So a small tax won't do the job. I think, yes, definitely policy intervention is needed to start with a moratorium on the extension of airports because the sector is growing. And if the infrastructure is growing with the sector, there's always the incentive to use that infrastructure. So I think we cannot keep on building airports and new runways at the rate we're doing right now. There needs to be a moratorium. Then pricing in general is, is not bad. I think pricing kerosene that is used, so charging the excise duty that is also charged on motor vehicle fuels that everybody pays, that would be a minimum step. Value-added tax on international flights. On national flights, I think in most countries, there is a value-added tax. International flights, there's not. So policy can do a lot still. I'm not sure that it is enough. So I think we need those positive role models because nobody will agree to tough legislation, to tough regulations, to higher carbon pricing rates in the air travel sector if they don't see a lifestyle model that is positive and works without a lot of flying. So I think we need this bottom-up behavioral change as well. And I think in Sweden, it's, it's brilliant. At the moment, there is a big or at least growing movement of people who committed end of last year or early this year to not fly in 2019. There was even a rather trending hashtag, Flight Free 2019 on Twitter. And so even a new word was coined or framed, which I think, Sophie, you can, can translate. <laughs> Flug scum or... Yeah, Flug scum, that would be flight shaming. Aha. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So, and so, it's quite powerful because there yeah. we're touching on a quite different subject, I think, this, your interaction with your peers and how the shame of flying comes into action here. Sure. Yeah, and shame can be a powerful motivator as well. <laughs> but I think <laughs> you, you touch on, uh, on an important point. I'm wondering if there's any other parting your words you want to leave our listeners based on your research or based on your personal experience and the commitments that you've made in reducing your flying. Yes, I think what I want to highlight is because I suppose many of the listeners are actually environmentally minded people who generally want to do something about climate change is to, to walk the talk, basically. I mean, first of all, we now with this interview show that it is possible to avoid traveling and there are great digital opportunities to participate in conferences, 
so for work, we don't really have to fly. And even Sweden shows now that the bookings for trains from the business sectors went up 20% on a year to year basis. So something is moving here. And I think we should be definitely part of it and not just part, but at the forefront because we are the environmentalists. So we have to be the good examples. And of course, I think whenever you can and, and, and you are in a position to also change policy, yeah, we should lobby for that. I think there are enough people who say, well, we want to change our behavior, but the political framework basically doesn't allow us to do so because when I take a train, it takes me 20 hours to travel from Slovenia to Sweden. It costs me 200 euros. Sometimes if I take the plane, it costs 150 euros and takes two hours. So we see something is wrong with policymaking too. So I think it has to be both. Good. I think that's a, a good note then to end on. We need individual action and we need policymakers uh, to implement stringent policies to mitigate the impacts of climate change. Thanks, Jonas, for joining us from Slovenia. Thank you, Jonas. And we will see you in Lund next time you come via train. Yes, thanks for having me. And, and you're right. I will travel up to Lund again, of course, by train. But I, I like the train. I can work on it. It's like sitting in the office, just sitting in a train, working with my computer. So the difference is not that big. Sounds good. Good reminder. We'll see you soon, Jonas. Thanks again for joining. Thank you. Bye. We want to thank Jonas for joining us via video from Slovenia. As we discussed, New Year's resolution is one way that many people are addressing their habits in relation to flying. Maybe you are inspired by those that are seeking to reduce their flying by making a 2019 New Year's resolution to fly less. However, New Year's resolutions are tough to keep. In fact, 25% of those that make resolutions fail by January 15th, and less than 10% of resolutions are successful until the year's end. So why are resolutions so hard to keep? Yeah, think about why you may have failed to see a resolution through. Many fail because they do not write their resolutions down. They do not track their progress. They do not hold themselves accountable or celebrate success. Right. So remember the value action gap. Research on the value action gap seeks to identify some factors that help to promote pro-environmental behavior. We seek to link the value action gap to the successful outcomes of New Year's resolutions. And of course, while human behavior is complex, researchers think that we can support each other in aligning our values with our actions if we embrace the following strategies. First, we must have knowledge of the issue and impacts of our action or inaction. At present, flying contributes to approximately 5% of the total greenhouse gas emissions and is expected to increase to 15% by 2050 as more people fly more often. Increasing greenhouse gas emissions will lead to more severe weather, drought, sea level rise, food and water scarcity, among other challenges. Second, we must possess knowledge of action strategies, things that we can do to reduce our impacts. We can reduce our carbon dioxide emissions by flying less. This means being more selective in the trips that we take and that when choosing to travel, to take the more sustainable travel options, like taking a train or bus when needed. Third, we must believe that we have the agency or the ability to act or to make choices, that our actions and choices can make a difference. Remember what Jonas said. Not only do we need stringent policies to mitigate the impacts of climate change, but individual action is needed in order to mitigate the impacts of climate change. And lastly, if we write down a resolution and make a verbal commitment to our family and friends, we are more likely to be successful. 
That means if you choose to commit to flying less in 2019, you should share your commitment with your family, with your friends, at your workplace, in order to have people help to hold you accountable to your commitments. Furthermore, feel free to tweet at us stating your pledge and we'll support you and your progress. You can tweet us at IIIEE Lund. With that, we bring this episode to a close. Our hope is not to demonize flying, because as we said, there are valid reasons to do so. However, we should all be more critical and more thoughtful of our actions, especially when it comes to flying. So, if you want to take, or if you've been thinking about taking, the New Year's pledge to join Flight Free 2019, or to fly less in 2019, we hope that this episode provides us some inspiration. Now, as I reflect on my own personal commitment, I will be flying less in 2019. I already take the bus or train or ferry instead of flying for holidays. Instead, I travel closer to home, which I think is really fun to explore your backyard in so many ways. I realize that there is so much that is left undiscovered around me. Uh, Sophie, do you have any reflections? Yes, and very much like what you just said, Stephen, I personally think that I oftentimes forget that there are many exciting things to discover just next door, or a train right away. And for 2019, I will seek to experience more of Sweden and neighboring Denmark, perhaps, rather than seeking adventures in faraway places. Also, I think that we should start seeing the journey as part of the experience, and not only something that we must go through in order to get to our destination. A train where you can offer a lot of relaxation and meetings while you get to enjoy the changing scenery outside of the window towards your destination. Good. One last thing that I want to convey to our listeners is not only can you make an individual choice to fly less, but of course you can encourage your organization to take steps to support those that want to fly less in the context of their work. There's some great examples of travel policies by other universities as well as by companies. It's certainly a worthwhile discussion to have within your own organization. So with that, Stephen, another episode. Yeah, in the books. Thanks to you for listening. We hope that this has inspired a discussion among you and your friends and your colleagues. You can find another episode coming to you in February, where we have a crash course on Conference of the Parties, or COP, as it's known. Yeah, and we want to thank Jonas Sonnenschein for uh, joining us on this episode and sharing his research and his results on this topic. Great. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you guys next month. Bye-bye.